Hello, I'm Kate Fitzgerald from the Learning Hack team, welcoming you to a new season of Great Minds on Learning. In this series, Donald Clark, the internationally famous author, blogger and entrepreneur, joins John Helmer to explore two and a half thousand years of thought and theorising about learning from the Greeks to the geeks. For this first episode of the new season, we look at one of the most contentious areas of inquiry in the whole of learning theory. Join us as we explore a group of thinkers from Sir Francis Galton, who was a half-cousin of Charles Darwin, to Daniel Goleman in the present day, each of whom attempted in their various ways to measure and quantify human intelligence. So Donald, this time we'll be hearing about theorists who aimed to identify and quantify the nature of human intelligence. Intelligence, of course, being intimately related to learning. So this relationship became a big issue in the 19th and 20th centuries as the era of mass education dawns. Why are some people better at learning than others? Is intelligence something we can improve and grow through learning? Or is it, as some thought, a precondition for learning something perhaps fixed and heritable. Does personality type play a role? All contentious territory. Donald, before we get into the specific controversies surrounding this group of people, can you give us a brief introduction to them as a group and tell us why you feel it's important for learning professionals to know about these thinkers now? Yeah, well, I think there's before this group came along, John, there was certainly, you know, has always been a tendency in our species to get obsessed by measuring us. <laughs> so, you know, we all know what our height, our waist size is, our shoe size, but these are practical things. But in sport, for example, you have all that physical measurement stuff, you know, it's a fundamental feature of our lives. And then before them also, I think it's worth mentioning that we had other schemas, you know, the things like astrology that have been around uh, uh, for a couple of millennia, three millennia at least probably. And then we had the four elements type thing, you know, the melancholic, phlegmatic, I can't remember what the other two are, uh, choleric and sanguine. Uh, so, so, yeah, they, they were used to describe personality types and so on. So it's always been a sort of failure, I think, of ours to try and get, distill some essence in people and to pigeonhole and categorize them. But this group, I mean, it really started to take off after Darwin, uh, uh, with Galton, of course, first of all, who's a very interesting man, uh, you know, exceptionally bright, if not uh, sometimes uh, bordering on the bizarre with his eugenics. But at the same time in France, over in France, we've been in Simon for entirely different reasons come along with really the intelligence quotient idea, the whole idea of, uh, of IQ. That was taken up really badly by Burt in the UK, and we're still suffering and laboring under this stupid 11 plus idea because that came right out of uh, Galton. Burt actually knew Galton, so the, you know there was a direct causal link there. And then we come into I think uh, where who sort of solidified this idea of IQ, and then it got embodied in the educational process. And then we tried to widen it out in the 20th century, the, the, the big name there, of course, being Howard Gardner with these multiple intelligences that turned out to be a bit, you know, difficult to validate, not really science, a bit flawed. And then also Myers-Briggs, that's almost Ponzi scheme, you know, I've seen no validity, no science, but seems to have been wholeheartedly embraced 
by HR and L&D and still is to this day in a bizarre fashion. And then, of course, we have Goldman's uh, emotional intelligences, but all these are trying to distill this sort of essence in people, you know, which I think is misguided. It's a form of essentialism, you know, which I think is wrong. It's appealing like astrology was appealing, but it's wrong. So let's get into it. Sir Francis Galton, 1822 to 1911, born in Birmingham. Uh, Something of an heir to the Birmingham Enlightenment. Two of his grandparents were among the founders of the Lunar Society. We covered this in the Enlightenment episode, including Erasmus Darwin, meaning that Charles Darwin was his half-cousin and he was influenced by Darwin's thought. It was a big thing in his life. He was a child prodigy and a polymath, uh, Renaissance man, as we call it nowadays, that horrible cliche. He was, among other things, a brilliant statistician, sociologist, psychologist, anthropologist, tropical explorer, geographer, inventor, criminologist. He invented fingerprinting, meteorologist, weatherman. He created the first weather map published in a British newspaper. He was a protogeneticist, psychometrician. He coined the phrase nurture versus nature, and on the not-so-plus side, he was the father of eugenics. Donald, hard hats on, everybody. Tell us about him. Yeah, well, the, I mean, the big break here is really Darwin. So Galton was a huge fan uh, of The Origin of Species and The Descent of Man, those two books. In particular, uh, the chapter in The Origin of Species around variation under domestication, that was the, the you know, Darwin brings evidence for his theory from the breeding of animals like cows and sheep and so on. And so Galton was almost fixated with this chapter (laughs) in the book. And as he went on, however, he was also had this huge capacity. I mean, he was extremely smart and a very good experimental psychologist, and particularly statistics which was a very early science in many ways. So we have Galton who brings statistics to the, to the table. As you rightly said, he invented, not only invented weather maps, but you know those little arrows and those little symbols we see on TV? He did that as well, astonishingly. How prophetic was that? But it's really an experimental psychology that his big impact comes in terms of learning theory. So he's got all these analytic skills and he, he focused really on what was then, it's still called differential psychology. In other words, we're looking for the differences between people, not what makes them the same. And that you can apply statistics to. Now, he was one of the first to really use, I mean, he wasn't the, absolutely the first to use correlation, but the first to really bring it to the fore and use it on this problem. Uh, on top of, on top of the, the notion of statistics, he also didn't invent regression to the mean, but he was the first to really observe it and gather data on it on, on sweet peas. And that was the idea, you know, regression to the mean, that if you look at parents who are particularly tall, they don't all have children who increasingly get taller. In fact, they're slightly below height and you get regression back to a mean. So uh-huh. a well-established okay. uh, Thanks for explaining that because I really didn't know what it meant. Yeah, yeah. So you, you see it all over, uh, all over the place, you know, uh, in big data sets especially. So he was very good at this analysis of data, and then he comes along, remember, the, you have Origin of uh, Species 
1859. He writes in 1869 his book on hereditary genius, which is trying to apply this problem to human traits, uh, you know, uh, with a rather odd objective here, of course, in terms of his eugenics. But let's come to that in a moment, mm -hmm. because it's his work on character, personality, along with the heritability of that, of course, uh, that made him an, an experimental psychologist, as some know. I mean, he was really good at this. But he was also interesting because he was one of the first to introduce twin studies. Now, I have twin boys, they're fraternal, but he understood that identical twins reared differently would give you a really interesting data set in terms of heritability, along with comparisons with fraternal twins, for example. So he was the first to really focus on, on this nature versus nurture, which is his phrase, he invented this. He was the first to use uh, twin studies. Now, when it comes to what he was actually his experimental psychologist focused on, it was rather unusual, actually, because he concentrated on, on the sensory data. And it was things like eye judgment, you know, how, how quickly could we find things in, a, in our visual field, things like keenness of sight and sound, color discrimination, all sorts of sensory stuff. It's a bit weird, really. It didn't actually go, it was more like a behavioral uh, examination of personality rather than a, a cognitive one. He tested reaction times, physical strength, and so on. Now, that led on to his eugenics work, and this is where it all goes downhill very quickly, mm -hmm. because uh, eugenics is actually a word invented by him, uh, interestingly. There's two sides to this eugenics thing. Funnily enough, it has a quite a, sort of, a curiously sort of left-wing component to it, which is he really did not believe in inherited wealth, for example. He thought that a meritocracy would be ideal. He believed, for example, that immigrants and refugees should be brought into the country because if they show better human traits than the indigenous population, why not? Uh, you know, I, on the other hand, this is all made, <laughs> made pretty horrific by an almost genocidal view of eugenics that poor people should not be breeding and should be celibate and go into some monastic communities versus uh, other people who showed you know, positive traits. Uh, they should be encouraged to marry and, of course, breed. Uh, so that, you know, that was his theory, as it were. <laughs> but he really sparked off this whole notion of the psychometric interest in those traits in human beings, you know, how alike were we or how different were we? Hmm. So enormously influential, the legacy is a bit toxic because yeah. of the, the eugenics. And there are so many, um, so many examples of how that's been used badly over the years. Yeah. And to this day is still used to justify all sorts of white supremacist and uh, stuff and so on. Can you disentangle the good stuff from the bad, do you think? Or, or do we yeah, there's not much to this stuff with care. Well, I mean, there's not, is there anything that's good here? Hmm. I mean, it was disastrous, let's, let's be honest, because this eugenics uh, thread in the 20th century, of course, was uh, most obvious in the Holocaust. And we need to say no more about that because uh, it was the horrific consequences of this type of thinking. But it goes far beyond this as well. I mean, we have eugenics policies that were in the United States, for example, uh, there was involuntary and uh, sterilization, involuntary sterilization. And that was also true in Sweden until it was only repealed in 1976. In other words, they were literally applying eugenic policies in Sweden, supposedly one of the most advanced and socially progressive countries in the world, 
up until 1976. And also in Japan, interestingly, and they only repealed their eugenics push in 1996. It was very recent indeed. So this has gone on for a long time. And as you rightly say, there are white supremacists still picking up on this. However, there was one particular little strand, because we're talking about learning theory rather than politics in general, there was one strand that proved to be disastrous, and that was his direct influence on someone he knew because he had worked with him, and that's Cyril Burt, who took a sort of Galtonian view of the world. Uh, uh, Cyril Burt worked at U, uh, UCL in London. Mm -hmm. uh, well, they still, actually, interestingly, they had a, a Galton chair of genetics, <laughs> they actually had originally a Galton chair of eugenics, which they only, uh, which actually had to be changed, of course, to the Galton change in genetics. Uh, but they had embedded, I mean, you talk about a university that was basically touting eugenics for a long, long time. It was only, I think, in 2019 they actually got rid of the word Galton. It's one example where absolutely you should not be touting that name around uh, uh, as the, the title of an academic chair. That's one statue that really should be pitched into the sea of, you know. Yes, <laughs> I think most people would say that would be pretty well justified. So, before we get to Bert, who you mentioned, who yeah. will be coming up soon. Next, we have Alfred Binet, 1857 to 1911. And uh, it looks like Theodore Simon, but we should probably pronounce it Theodore Simon, yeah, <laughs> uh, 1873 to 1961, who was Binet's pupil. So Binet, born in Nice, he attended law school in Paris, then studied physiology at the Sorbonne before largely educating himself about psychology through his own reading, influenced by John Stuart Mill a lot. There's a bit of mid-career drift. His work on hy hypnosis sort of went nowhere. And he wasn't really allied to an institution for quite a long time and therefore was a, a you know, kind of midlife crisis in a way. But he finds a strong interest in the study of developmental development, rather, spurred by the birth of his two daughters. Alice, one of them, is a subjectivist, he says, and Marguerite is an objectivist. Um, so he has some kind of introvert, extrovert. And this was long before Carl Jung's work on personality types. Uh, eventually gets a job at the Sorbonne. And that's where he hooks up with his collaborator, Simon, with whom he develops the first IQ test known as the Binet-Simon test. Uh, and, and that as well has a bit of a troubled heritage once it goes stateside. Yes. Uh, Simon's background was more clinically based, including a lot of work with um, air quotes. I'm doing air quotes, uh, which you'll see on YouTube, but you won't if you're just listening to the podcast. Abnormal children, which is what attracted Binet's attention. The focus of their intelligence testing works to identify those children who needed special help in order to learn. Donald, tell us about their test, because I, I, a brief look at it. Some of the questions when you read them now seem absolutely extraordinary. Yes, yeah, so you're absolutely right there. Their focus was the antithesis of Galton's in many ways, because this was a government commission who were trying to uh, write the lifeboat and other was focus on children who were failing in education. Uh, uh, that was the, the spirit behind Binet and uh, Simon's research. Uh, so they came up with the first IQ test in 1905, and of course they did not intend it to be a selective measure for private schools and the 11-plus system, of course. It was the very opposite. It was meant to identify children and then apply your efforts and funding to support the children that needed it the most. 
which is obviously a good thing. Now, in the in the book, Modern Ideas About Children, they have a background pe pedagogy about what type of improvement they needed to apply here. And unlike Galton, who, as I said, concentrated on these sensory things, you know, like reaction times and so on, to be fair, they were much more sophisticated in terms of their psychology. So it was really a series of really very focused cognitive tasks they were interested in. Okay, there were about 30 of these, and they were sort of things like naming body parts, counting coins and money, recalling numbers, defining words, missing words and sentences, all those things that would be familiar to people in tests these days. Uh, and they were used, what, what they did was grade them on increasing difficulty to try and assess where a child would be. And this is where this concept of mental age comes in and is mm -hmm. linked. You hear that, oh, oh, the child has a mental age of something, you know. Uh, this came from Beanie and Simon as well. So they were not just written questions, they were also generative tasks. They actually got the, you know, got the children to do things. Uh, so it was quite sophisticated. The tests experimentally were quite sophisticated, as was the data gathering. Now, if the child couldn't complete the tests, tests that were given on the age seven tasks, uh, then they were attributed a mental age, no matter what age they were. So that was their that was their innov innovation, as it were. Uh, it was another person entirely, a German psychologist called William Stern, who took that stuff and then applied it to the who gave the mental quotient, as they call it, or the IQ quotient. So okay. to avoid bias here, another really important and I think a, a good thing about being in semen is they wanted to introduce the objective measure. So an independent observer always had to be present. You could never do what Piaget and others had done, and that's spoil the data by having an interested party. So it was this idea of objective measurement. Okay. Some of the questions were strange, though. I, I remember seeing one where there were sort of sketches of, of faces, and the question was, um, can you tell which is the which is the pretty face and which is the ugly face. And yeah. they had some quite caricatured um, nasty faces with kind of big noses and big chins. And then next to that, a very pretty face with a beauty spot. And I mean, that does seem very strange nowadays, doesn't yeah. it? Yes. But you're saying yeah. there's a lot of, there is a lot of intellectual rigor actually in, in that first test. Yes, um, I think so. Even if it kind of led on to, to bad things. Yeah, they, they were quite carefully, I mean, the methodology was good because they were calibrated, uh, tested. The independent observer, of course, was an important thing, so you didn't taint the data by the person who was presenting or gathering the data. These are all good things in terms of experimental psychology. That, that was important. It was interesting you mentioned that, John, about, you know, this bizarre nature of some of the questions, but... Uh, if you look at PISA, for example, there was quite an interesting study there showed by a Swedish statistician showing that that type of questioning was all over PISA, PISA you know? In other words, mm. there were cultural implications in the questions themselves yeah. that quite often the designers weren't aware of. And so I think this is a big problem with these generic IQ tests, that they very often build in cultural assumptions without you realising it. Uh, uh, and there are still many, many examples of that. But the good thing about the, the uh, good thing about Beanie and Simon is, the, is, is I think at least there was more rigor in the methodology there, and they weren't really after IQ as such, and they certainly were not interested in the heritability of abilities or IQ. That wasn't what they were after, because they saw that 
it actually was there were lots of things in the social uh, in terms of social conditioning that shaped uh, uh, these kids, especially poverty, of course. Uh, so I think their heart was in the right place. Unfortunately, the intelligence quotient or that term IQ pops out of their work and gets sort of fossilized as we move forward uh, through Bert and I think and, uh, and others as we move forward. And also when it went to the US, didn't that sort of... Um, yes, the, the, so you have the, Sta the Stanford Beanie test, which is still around today, you go to their website, that was way back the, the, you know, before the First World War, 1916 or something, and that, that was designed to measure intelligence across, there were five, I think four or five different types of cognitive ability, of course that's much more modern here, so they're looking at reasoning, your basic knowledge, your general knowledge you might have, quantitative reasoning and I think visual spatial stuff and working memory. So they're they're looking at these basic cognitive qualities, as it were, in terms of how you handle the world or data or knowledge. So it's quite contemporary. And many people use the Stanford BNA test because they think it's contemporary and it works. Uh, but it certainly was picked up in anger at Stanford. That's correct. And uh, according to Wikipedia, um, it ultimately resulted in the Stanford BNA uh, manual testing ultimately resulted in curtailing the reproduction of feeble-mindedness and in the elimination of an enormous amount of crime, pauperism and industrial inefficiency, in other words, eugenics. Yes, that, that's right. As we said yesterday, uh, you know, it's surprisingly, it was places like the US, Sweden and Japan who took eugenics up, uh, of course, Nazi Germany and uh, the, the, the world of fascism it was perhaps the most extreme example. But we sometimes forget that those who think they were on, on the, the progressive side were all, all strapless throughout the 20th century with devastating consequences for people. Yeah, there's an extraordinary number of, of people who actually are tainted by belief in eugenics. Yes. H.G. Yeah. Wells, any number of um, intellectuals in the 20s and 30s kind of fell under that spell. Yes, especially in the early part of the 20th century, a very good book on this called The Intellectual and the Masses by Carey, which shows that even into the arts, you know, a lot of these writers and supposedly quite liberal people had very, very, especially English writers, had very fulsome views on the, on the poor. <laughs> yeah. uh, this comes out, of course, of this tradition from Bentham and Mill, Panopticon and so on about uh, the Victorian view of crime, especially, is that it was a you know a, a very much a religious perspective that it was a cognitive weakness, and that it was almost uh, it was almost like an illness that you could pass to other people. So they were isolating people in prison cells and so on. So uh, the British tradition had its own spin on all of this, and of course we have the person we're coming to next, no doubt, and that's Cyril Burke, who. Uh, has had a disastrous effect, uh, did and still does have a disastrous effect on UK education. So let's get on to Cyril Burt. So Cyril Lodovic Burt, eighteen eighty-three to nineteen seventy-one. English educational psychologist and geneticist born in London, probably, there's some doubt about that. Professor of psychology at UCL in London and president of the British Psychological Society. His claim to fame is that he was responsible for the introduction of the 11 plus exam in the UK um, through the 1944 Butler Act. I gave myself a trigger warning before researching this one because uh, I have a bit of history with the 11 plus. I was one of four siblings two of whom passed 11 plus, two of whom failed for reasons that had nothing to do with intelligence, 
uh, one of them had undiagnosed dyslexia, only came up many years later. And differences in our subsequent life chances was a source of division and sadness in my family. Um, it took a long while for that to really un unpick itself. Um, so I won't say a lot about this, Donald, because I could well get into ranting mode. Just tell us how robust was the science behind the 11 plus? Well, I think you'd be right to rant, John, because I also was the last cohort in Scotland to take the 11 plus. So out of a class of 30, four of us went on to a more academic uh, route in life. And, you know, the, uh, uh, well, the, the rest I never saw again. It was almost eugenics in action. So one of my least favourite theorists in this area is uh, the hideous <laughs> uh, Cyril Lidovich Burt. And the reason for this is he knew Galton, remember. He knew Francis Galton uh, and was familiar with the ideas that, you know, the heritability of intelligence and, so, and the eugenic uh, position on this. Uh, and he quoted Galton as the progenitor of his ideas. It was very clear that this is where this came from. However, there's something far more really awful in this. Uh, not only did he have the senior position and shaped an educational act that came through Parliament and now applied the 11 plus, and there's still 160 odd schools in England that apply it stupidly, but he cheated. He was a liar and a cheat. So he falsely, first of all, he falsely claimed to have invented a statistical technique called factor analysis. In actual fact, he stole it from another guy called Charles Spearman. Put that to one side, just stealing a theory and claiming ownership of it is one thing. But far worse than this was the complete falsification of his data. So he edited, falsified not only the data for his own work, but also from the co-workers in the research. So this is the worst form of falsification, really. And... To be clear what that falsification was, because it's important that we nail this guy, uh, his cor the, the correlation efficiency on IQs and his twin studies, so he picked up on twin studies from Galton, of course, uh, that's, they were the same to three decimal places right across all the articles and all the reports, despite the fact that data had been added twice to the sample of twins. In other words, the chances of this happening are so remote, it's ridiculous. And even Hernshaw, who wrote his, bio his biography, came to the conclusion that most of Burt's data was fraudulent and unreliable. Now, the sad news here is not that. The sad news is that this was the data upon which the standardised 11-plus exam in the UK was enshrined in the 1944 Butler Act, Education Act. Hmm. And it's the reason why 160 schools in England alone they also have it, not, they no longer have it in Scotland, but in England and uh, Northern Ireland, they sort of banned it in Northern Ireland, but it's resurfaced <laughs> uh, because, you know, the parents, middle class parents don't get, don't like getting rid of this because it helps their kids more than anything else, as the research shows. But of course, the truth of the matter is that out of all the people we're mentioning, his influence, Cyril Burt's influence, was more insidious than the others because it's still being used this day to justify a non-evidence-based policy that helps the wealthier kids to the detriment of the poor. So it's got nothing to do with intelligence or abilities or merit and everything to do with filtering and selection. And that's why uh, I've given a little rant on your behalf there, John, since I yes. think we were both tainted by this and saw it for real, you know? I think I saw it's incredibly divisive, you know, because I went exactly. to grammar school and, and, and on higher education and so on, and people I grew up with went to the secondary modern and did uh, metalwork and fighting. 
Yeah. That's kind of all they were taught and yeah. left school very early. And, you know, so many of them have gone on to, you know, one of my brothers, my brother who um, didn't pass the 11 plus is, is now head of mindfulness for Kensington and Chelsea and yeah. works with addicts and so on. And, but, but he, it, he had a difficult road to get there. Yeah. I'm now going to argue against that and say that it's possible to, to detect a kind of a, uh, an egalitarian instinct behind this because you have if, if i've got this right i haven't got this terribly skewed you have things like the iq which are a test of cognitive ability you think have things like sats which mm -hmm. are a test of kind of what you know um in a sense the the, the the kind of cats the cognitive ability tests are more egalitarian because they will just kind of pick up latent intelligence uh, a, a latent ability to learn and the grammar school I went to had a big council estate in the catchment area and was also full of very bright kids from um, council houses alongside the kind of people like my, myself grew up in a detached house and so on. So there, there's an interesting mix, which was a, a direct result of, of the 11 plus. Of course, it wasn't, you didn't pay for it. It was free. It was a state school. Though it was a grammar school. So potentially there is a kind of egalitarian thrust of that. Whereas SATs, you know, the middle-class parents can prime their children for that much easier, do their own coursework for them and, and stuff. And yeah. now it's all allocated by postcode. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, the truth, when, when the research is actually done on this, and it has been done to death because it was such a contentious issue, yeah. it quite clearly shows that the sharp elbows of the middle class come into play here. And of course, people are prepared for these exams, you know, they sometimes get tutoring. And in fact, there are whole companies that do nothing but this. This is true of SATs in America as well. And there's also this rather odd view of its focus on pure reason. Mm -hmm. uh, to, so it concentrates on the head as opposed to the heart and hand. So those other skills are almost immediately demoted at age 11 as being secondary and unimportant. And everybody who has skills in the caring professions, whether it's in care homes or nurses, are regarded as low skilled. Really? <laughs> and of course, those people who have vocational skills are regarded as lesser beings. So you get this sort of class reinforcement of job types. And of course, the people who are good at knowledge work or knowledge workers grab the rewards for themselves. Yeah. And who would deny that that's had a, a truly awful impact on society, as we, uh, you know, uh, looking at the news today? <laughs> uh, I, you know, I think it's, it's had a horrific impact on, on many people's lives. Well, I had a go at adding balance. <laughs> Fair enough, John. <laughs> I always felt that a scientist knows the world only one thing, and that is the truth as he sees it. If the truth contradicts deeply held beliefs, that's too bad. Tact and diplomacy are fine in international relations, in politics, perhaps even in business. In science, only one thing matters, and that is the fact. So this guy didn't mind winding people up. Born yep. in Berlin, a child of the Weimar Republic, interestingly, his mother was a film star, his father, an actor, a nightclub entertainer, was once voted the handsomest man on the Baltic coast <laughs> for heritage. Mother a Lutheran, father a Catholic. I, I actually had that mixed, but the other way around. My, my father came from a Lutheran background. Right. Catholic. But his maternal grandmother was of Jewish heritage and died in a concentration camp, sadly, as a result, because of the, the, the laws in Nazi Germany. You know, you, if you had just a drop of that blood, then 
off he went to the cabs. So he ended up in London with the rest of that um, Jewish diaspora. Did his PhD at UCL and was professor of psychology at the Institute of Psychiatry, King's College London, from 1955 to 1983. His name is most often associated with the two-letter acronym we've mentioned already, IQ. But as we've seen, he didn't invent IQ testing. That had been around for a while. So what did Isenck add to the sum of human knowledge on learning? Yeah, so you had that UCL popping up again. Galton's old as alma mater. And, of course, Cyril Burt. Mm. The interesting thing, I think, Eisner, he's seen often as the sun in the centre of the solar system when you discuss IQ is the first name that comes to mind, as it were. Uh, and to be fair, uh, forget the fact that he was a sort of prickly character. He did some interesting things beyond this, of course, as well. He wrote a really brilliant critique of Freud called The Decline and Fall of the Freud Freudian Empire, really, you know, really hammering Freud for, for being mostly made up uh, and, of course, uh, now disproven. But he was obsessed by this whole intelligence, and in particular, the identification of its uh, hereditary component. Okay, so, uh, but to be fair, nobody believes that it's all headed, it's all, uh, all nature, no nurture. And the danger is in caricaturing the work by people like I think, because they were using quite sophisticated statistical methods to try and untangle this nature-nurture uh, a, a, a mixture. It turns out that things are much more complex than you might imagine. So the whole thing gets, you know, embroiled in these really obscure debates, esoteric debates about all these diff uh, different statistical methods. But I think there are some, this is where really we managed to have a target that we could attack on intelligence, because I think the major, the, the book that really uh, came to the, came to the fore in this one was Stephen Jay Gould's 1981 book, and that was The Mismeasure of Man. And it was we're constantly, I'll go back to this essentialism, we're constantly trying to find these essential qualities in brains, uh, but it's much messier than you might imagine. So he challenged, I think, and others, claiming that actually what you're just doing is turning these sort of abstract com concepts into concrete realities. You're looking for these things and making them concrete when they're not really, they're rather messy, diffuse brain effects. That's called reification, that notion that you take here. So I think that's the first problem here. And I think Stephen Gould nailed think on this one. The second big one is this confusion of correlation with cause. Uh, not only in the heritability side, but in the general entangling of all this stuff. You find a lot of this going on. A lot of the debates are around that. In other words, how messy it is, how difficult it is to actually identify the causes of things as opposed to just general cor correlations here. <laughs> and it's certainly the case. The reason it's difficult is it's very difficult to find human beings, of course, there's twin study stuff, but class, culture, gender, all this stuff plays a role in these variables. So the brain is... Uh, a data-rich organ, uh, but it makes it very difficult to isolate variables when you're looking at the nature-nurture argument. Mm. Uh, and of course, you have people like Ericsson and so on who come along and show that actually, you know, you can take four guys from Liverpool and they just practice endlessly and become brilliant after 10,000 hours of practice and become the Beatles. So you, you have that stuff coming in from Howard Ericsson uh, on top of this as well. But this notion that there's a single unitary measure, IQ, of the mind is, I mean, pretty much seen by everyone as being ridiculously narrow and misleading because the brain is a set of, a good way of describing it is interrelated cognitive abilities, you know? Mm -hmm. Isolating one thing or even a series of things is actually 
maybe, maybe just conceptually a, a big category mistake in a sense to start with. And this comes through, as we'll see in, uh, you know, gardeners, uh, even in multiple intelligences, emotional intelligence. There's always this trying to find the holy grail, <laughs> which is this essential thing in the brain that you can measure and latch onto. But mm. it lacks a lot of statistical rigor when you look at it in, uh, in anger, as it were. Now, to be fair to Isink, again, because... Uh, he was also behind one of the more acceptable forms of this in terms of personality traits. So there's a very famous uh, measure of personality called the OCEAN, O-C-E-A-N, which, if I get this right, stands for openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and uh, and being neurotic, neuroticism. So those, those are the those are the measures. Now that's quite well validated and the best we've got. But it was Isaac who came through with this. It was actually put forward in a paper by Costa and McCray. And although Isaac nitpicked and doesn't agree with them, it was really a lot of Isaac's work that was lay behind this as well. So, I mean, this is miles away from the sort of financial learning styles or personality types you see in NLP or, or Myers-Briggs, for example. It's quite, yeah. you know, the ocean thing. Is, is, so out of Isaac, we get some quite good stuff that's curiously ignored in favour of really bad stuff, which is Myers-Briggs. So being fair to Isaac, are you being too fair to him? What what about the things like the cancer-prone personality? Yes, well, um, well, as always, you know, going back to my original premise behind Isaac and uh, going back to Galton, there, the, in this search through personality-type questionnaires especially, it's very difficult to see how one can really latch on to this, uh, you know, uh, distilling the gold out of the ore, as it were, because it's all ore. You know, you can't really come down and isolate anything or isolate the variables. So I think most of this has fallen by the wayside now, especially now that we've got the genome worked out and we know a lot about genetics and how messy this is with regard to social triggers. In other words, it seems to be a sort of dialectic. There's some things that are definitely heritable. There's no doubt about that. But there are many things that are triggered by uh, environmental effects, making this a very, very complex issue indeed. He's been criticised uh, for taking funding for the from the tobacco industry, uh, for instance, over the cancer-prone personality thing, um, and yeah. also being funded by some uh, right-wing supremacist organisations, I think, and is some of his stuff about intelligence and race. Was Are there worries about you know, his honesty in the same way about the, the, as there are about Bert, do you think? Yes. I mean, I think, I mean, in general, I, I think this this was, uh, remember the, the period when he was working at UCL, generally in this period, I think the, the funding streams into the university system, let's not imagine they're entirely free from this as we speak in terms of climate change and oil companies, for example. So I think it's always been a, a feature of this. But to be fair to Isink, I mean, he was a good scientist and statistician. So you can go to the papers and look at the data and whatever the source of the funding may have been, uh, you know, that may have tainted it, of course. But uh, I think... Uh, you know, we have a fair view of what he did and more importantly, what he didn't do, which was absolutely nail IQ. So moving on. Sure. To Howard Gardner, um, uh, born 1943 and still among us. Uh, yeah. I think was born in the First World War. Uh, Gardner was born in the 
Second World War, yeah. and a later World War than I think, who's nevertheless part of the same diasporic, di- diasporic movement inspired by flight from the Nazis, having been born in Scranton, Pennsylvania, to German-Jewish immigrants who fled Germany in the 30s. I mean, again and again, while we're, we're, we're doing these theorists in the 20th century, you see how, how kind of rich was the, the harvest the rest of the world got from um, German people who had to leave uh, because of the Nazis. Yeah. Um, a studious child who loved the piano, in fact, he taught piano for, for a while, uh, but became more famous as a developmental psychologist, studied and taught at Harvard, best known for his theory of multiple intelligences, which is very popular in education still to this yeah. day. The way his theory was applied in schools, however, appalled him. On your blog, Donald, you quote him describing one particular instance as a mishmash of practices, left, right, brain contrast, learning styles, NLP, all mixed up with dazzling promiscuity. Sounds like one of your blogs. Yeah, before we get, and it was him that said that, not me. Yeah, yeah, it's him that said it. Yeah, <laughs> before before we get on to whether was he a role model, perhaps maybe taught greater writers. <laughs> before we get on to whether this was a good theory or not, multiple intelligences. Um, before it was trashed by his fans, could you give us a description of how the theory works? What are multiple intelligences? Okay, so the one thing I like about Gardner is he understands that this is a complicated and messy area. And he doesn't hide from this, you know. He says that the evidence that he wants to gather is from sort of, does it have any, you know, he has he has four, or, well, more than that, seven or eight different sources for his data that suggest that intelligence is something and that there's not one or two or one thing like IQ, but there are, in fact, a whole rack of these things. Before we get to the rack of intelligences, the sort of things that he was interested in were things like it, you know, was brain damage experiments. He thought, well, let's gather the data from that because if you damage something and it disappears, that's obviously the source of that intelligence. He was interested in the idiot savant type idea and prodigies, people, you know, who showed extraordinary talents in certain areas like music and so on. Uh, and then whether there was a set of rules or things you could identify as an intelligence, like playing music as a sort of measurable skill, you know, against the standard. Then it gets a bit messy, actually, because he also talks about does it have a distinctive development history? And others, you know, as you're growing up, how do you develop that skill? Does, is there an sort of end state to it? And then beyond that, and this is where it gets really quite vague, I think, he also brings in its sort of evolutionary psychology. Is it plausible in evolutionary terms that we may have had to develop this skill? Okay. Is it, is it plausible in evolutionary terms? It starts to get a bit vague here. And then there's the, of course, pure experimental psychology in terms of performing tasks where you can measure things. Beyond that, psychometric findings. And then he had a thing called encoding it in a symbol system, which means can you actually represent this skill by writing about it or music and notation or whatever? He thought that these were the these were like the tributaries that flowed into the main river that led to multiple intelligences. You know? mm. Okay. So he has these eight intelligences that he gathers from this data. I mean, people are really starting to question how, whether this is based on science or not. And I would say it is not. And many people have criticized them for this, but I think they're right in criticizing them. Now, what are these eight intelligences? It's really important. Now, teachers love this because it curiously fits the school curriculum quite neatly. And so, we, And you've got to be a bit suspicious about that. So first of all, we talked about uh, a, a linguistic intelligence, you know, using language sensitive 
the tool language itself. Linguistics is the number one. The second one is maths. You so your ability to do maths and logic. Uh, obviously, math science type stuff. That's the second one. Fitting the sort of English maths split in the curriculum already. Then music, of course, performing, appreciating, you know, composing all that sort of stuff. Then the body kinesthetic things, sports, you know, being being coordinated, good at sports, being aware of your body and so on. That was number four. And then spatial abilities, the ability to handle things in 3D or use uh, use your spatial ability to solve problems in geometry, uh, trigonometry and so on. And then the last two are interpersonal and intrapersonal. So the interpersonal is your ability to read other minds and deal with other people in a social situation. The intrapersonal is your self-knowledge, your knowledge of your of your understanding, your own oh, inner yeah. being, as it were. So, you know, it's linguistic. So you've got sort of linguistic, uh, in, uh, math, musical, beyond that, body movements, 3D space, interpersonal and intrapersonal. Then, much later, 1999, because there were three major, this took place over a long period of time as he was writing, he added uh, another one, number eight, which is called naturalist. And this was your ability to really solve problems in real time. And I was take stuff from our, your surroundings, surroundings and apply them to make good judgments. <laughs> it was quite vague, this one, but he, he felt that that was something missing in all of this. It's almost like the equivalent of Maslow's uh, you know, self-realization uh, uh, at the top of the pyramid or whatever. So yeah. there were eight at the end of all this. There were eight of these things. But, it, I mean, to be fair... To be fair to Gardner, he saw people not as having these eight as, you know, almost like a calculus of intelligences. He saw them operating together and complementing each other, almost like blended learning, a blend of intelligences. And that's the phrase mm. he used. So I think, to be fair, people are criticizing him for it not being scientific, but he didn't, he never claimed that it was absolutely based on pure science. It was based on a number of different evidence bases. Okay, so yeah. and it, the the problem here is that most teachers, when they think about, they think it was science. You know, his mm. theory of multiple intelligence is almost implied that it had been researched and was based on neuroscience or whatever, when it wasn't. And that's that's why he was so heavily criticised by people like John White and so on. But fairly criticised, and John White wasn't criticising Gardner. John White was just saying this is not validated by the evidence, so let's let's hang back a little bit before we start redesigning a whole school around this. And people were actually doing this, redesigning whole curricula, schools around multiple intelligences. Uh, and and actual fact, it was based on broad observations, not 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 precision controlled science. And it's not. To be honest, it's not clear how Gardner's eight things map onto cognitive functions. You know, it's very difficult to take his eight and map them onto what we know in cognitive psychology about how the brain works yeah. and how to actually deal with content. Our view of people like Gardner, others like him as well, tends to suffer a bit from the extraordinary leaps and bounds by which neuroscience has progressed yeah. in the last couple of decades and yeah. multiple intelligences don't seem to get much support, if any, from the science um, as yeah. it's developed. Is he a case of file under forget or can you point to any lasting legacy from no Gardner's i think I, I think the great thing about gardner is at least he broke us out of the cage of iq and the 11 plus and the mm -hmm. idea that uh, all you should measure here is the sort of 
logical reasoning and these sort of rather abstract skills that you get in IQ tests. I think he broke us from those chains. That was a good thing. However, he inadvertently came up with another looser set of chains, but chains nevertheless, because the eight intelligences are all a bit weird. <laughs> you know, well, they just seem curiously fit the, the school curriculum and don't map, map onto any sort of cognitive view of the world and so on. And that's why he he was really angry when people picked up his theories and started applying them to schools as a whole, you know. Mm. Uh, but he's still perpetuating the idea of intelligences, which I think is the mistake. I, I think the word is all wrong here. And it's wrong because you start pigeonholing students, categorizing people, mm. rather than exploring and developing their potential. So sometimes it acts as a stop. Like the 11 plus in you, that you told in your quite emotional anecdotes about in, in your own family, it's actually stopped people progressing. You know, said, that's enough. Yeah. You're not going to do any more. You're stupid. Off you go and do this. You, however, who passed this, you go off <laughs> and do this. This is mm. ridiculous at age 11. And it the was danger such of a lottery, I think. I, I, I think I really think I passed it because I, I was told I had a high reading age when I was a kid. I could read before I went to, to primary school. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was kind of hyper-literate. I wasn't all that interested in anything else, wasn't really good at maths yeah. or anything like that, and a bit head in clouds, really. Yeah. I think I passed 11 plus because quite a large amount of it was sort of on um, linguistic abilities. Yeah, I think that's probably right, which is where the bias in this thing comes in. So, yeah. I, mean, you're brought up, I was brought up in a house that didn't have any books. <laughs> you know, so, so, you know, the only reading I could do was school books and going to the library. So, you know, there are intrinsic disadvantages for people from poorer backgrounds in these tests, mm -hmm. which are often forgotten, I think. Uh, but to be fair to Gardner, he himself recognised that this was all, you know, this mishmash, as he called it, word, of stuff was taken up, uh, you know, with dazzling promiscuity. He described how people are yeah. taking up. He described this thing as a meme. He thought it'd become a meme out there in the educational world, which he fought fought against in many ways. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that that was him, really. It's not it's neuroscience at all. I think there were. I think there were lots of other critiques of his work, you know, that are quite important as well. This notion that he's redefining things in this fine-grained fashion is all very well, but brain science just doesn't really support that at all. So you've got Pickering, Howard Jones. I mean, there were lots of other people in, who, who just say that this is an oversimplification. So let's draw back from this. And that actually lots of these things he called uh, multiple intelligences actually overlap, are quite dispersed and complex in the brain. And therefore he's quite wrong to draw them out as individual intelligences. And again, we go back to this. My own view in this is that all of these theorists are have a form of a, a disease called essentialism. They're always, used, they're always looking to distill the essence of something. Uh, and that's the mistake because there may be no essence. <laughs> it's too complicated to, to simplify it in that manner. So on to Catherine Cook Briggs, 1875 to 1968, and Isabel Briggs Myers, 1897 to 1980. You all know them as Myers-Briggs, inventors of the Myers-Briggs Briggs Type Indicator, MBTI, a test-based instrument for assessing personality. Probably the world's most popular personality test, uh, capital W, capital M, capital P, capital P, capital T. <laughs> Catherine was from Michigan, where her father was on the faculty of Michigan State University. He homeschooled her until she went to college at 14 and earned a degree in 
agriculture. Catherine, in turn, homeschooled Isabel, her daughter. Uh, Isabel went to Swarthmore College when she went to college, where she met Clarence Gates Myers, who she subsequently married. Um, are you keeping up with this, folks? It's confusing. <laughs> it confuses me. Um, and it was Catherine's inability to understand her new son-in-law's personality. I'm reading between the lines a bit here that led to her interest in different personality types. You know, there is a very long history of um, son-in-laws and mother-in-laws not understanding each other um, <laughs> in English musical comedians. Um, reading Jung was decisive influence on Catherine's ideas. She was such a fan of Jung that she wrote erotic fiction about him. And she passed this interest on to her daughter. The, I, I take the intellectual interest in uh, Jung rather than the erotic fiction, um, as they worked on personality types together. So um, she spent years working on these personality types and then was joined by her, her daughter. But it was Isabel who created the first test, forerunner of what is still now a dominant force in personality type testing. There's a third person in the story, Isabel's son, Peter Briggs Myers inherited the MBTI copyright on her death in 1980 and did a lot to publicize it. Fun fact, he once rescued Albert Einstein in a sailing incident. <laughs> so, Donald, Myers-Briggs, good science or bad science or a dynastic Ponzi scheme? No science at all, I think I would sum up this here, John. So you have, you have these, it's very interesting, this, you know, a mother and daughter team, who come along and they're obsessed by you. And the interesting thing is to understand these two, you really have to go back and read Jung. And I'm not a big fan of Jung's archetype. So, you know, having, re having read that literature, <laughs> you see that Jung picks up on all sorts of people like Nietzsche's Apollonian Dionysian, a whole chapter in his book on that, and yeah. then Schelling, another, you know, it's all to do with German, ideal, uh, German philosophy, really. So Jung comes up with these rather silly, I think, uh, you know, that, not even the logic doesn't work because in the logic of oppositions, you have contraries and, and contradictories and all sorts of fine detail that if you've ever studied logic, you would know about. And Jung seemed to be gloriously immune to mathematics and logic. So they pick up on Jung and they pick up on these 16, uh, uh, 16 types in their text. They simplify it enormously. But they're largely fictions in the first place, okay? The trouble here is that there is absolutely no evidence, no serious peer-reviewed control study evidence that supports Meyer Briggs whatsoever. <laughs> it is basically this massive marketing scheme that has got a hold of people, the brand itself, Myers Briggs, everybody recognizes these two words, ignoring the fact that the two people who came up with it had no scientific qualifications, neither did their son, neither has anything since uh, been put on the table to show that it's true. In fact, and this is where it gets interesting, the people who take the test you know, repeatedly, one after another, get completely different results. Up to 50% get, get different results on the second attempt. Now, that pretty much destroys its validity full stop. If a test gets that sort of variability, you're all over the place then. But what I like is a really, really smart bit of work done by Clark's, uh, Carcadon and Cook, and that was uh, in the 1980s. And so they were at people were asked to compare profiles, the preferred profile, and then it was compared against the actual MBTI profile, and only half the people picked the same profile. 
So yeah, so you know, it, it's it's pretty much bizarre, really, in terms of the self perception, your personality, other people's perception, or tested evidence when you repeat the test. But the really worrying thing is its predictive power is also unproven. In other words, if you're if you're using MBTI uh, MBTI to recruit or give people promotion or pay rises, this is all wrong. It's all wrong because it will not be a predictor of future success. So we know this. In fact, the ocean model is far better, flawed though that is, going back to ISIC. So I think it has serious, serious flaws. Now, just carry on with this evidence because it's really important that we get, you know, we, we look at what's been done here. So Kuiper's also looked at the relationship between M MBTI and teamwork, okay? And looked at something like 1,600 people, you know, in about 156 teams, huge study, uh, and showed that the MBTI profiles did not predict team development well. In other words, the idea was that you pick people according to the role in the team and the teams mm. will perform better. No, they didn't. So no predictive power, okay? And the National Academy of Sciences in the 90s basically said, listen, let's drop this. It's just there's no well-designed research that shows it's true and that it should not be used for recruitment and careers and so on. Mm. Now, so it, it begs the question as to why this damn thing is so popular. You know, what is it? And I think it goes back to the whole, you know, intuition astrology idea going way back to the very first thing we mentioned. Astrology, tarot card reading, NLP, all that sort of stuff. I think all of this goes back to, to Jung and astrology during the Renaissance much earlier, in fact. This willingness, this gullibility we have, this curiosity we have to find something out about ourselves that we perhaps didn't know. Everybody loves a little self-quiz, you know? Hmm. Uh, and of course, the other big driver is people can make money. <laughs> uh, yeah. you know, HR people can make money. The people who own the test can make money. And it makes everybody feel as though they're doing something very scientific and correct and objective when they're not. And so, you know, I've been fooled on with the evidence there because I think the evidence is that it should be dropped and dropped immediately before we do any other further damage to people in the workplace or schools, you know, wherever it's applied. A worrying thing from what you said there for me is that I've, I've come across um, sentiment analysis tools, personality analysis tools, um, AI driven as, as they all claim to be. Um, that that will uh, there's one that kind of hooks into LinkedIn and can tell you the personality of, of the person that you're writing to or, or yes. you're, you're approaching as well. Uh, when you dig into them, you find they're actually based on Myers yes. Briggs, yeah. and so the kind of once you get into a kind of algorithm-driven system, and there's no yeah. uh, you, you know there's very little kind of interrogation of what are the roots of the categorizations being used, what's the science underlying this. You yep. just use it because it's on the desktop. That thing starts to have an even more extended life and less ability to be questioned. I think that stuff's quite worrying. Daniel Goleman, 1946, still among us, very much still among us. Yeah. Um, and I'm quoting, a growing body of research now strongly supports the benefits for any organization of having emotionally intelligent leaders and employees. Those words are from a LinkedIn blog published 20th of January, 2022, um, probably about a week ago, by the author <laughs> and science journalist, who is our next subject of interest. He grew up, it sounds like something out of line of duty, doesn't it? Personal <laughs> interest. He grew up in California, the child of two professors. His uncle was a nuclear physicist who worked on the Manhattan Project, 
and coined the term Faustian bargain. In the 60s, uh, Daniel spent time in India studying under a spiritual teacher, a boomer to the hilt. Returned as a visiting lecturer at Harvard, Goldman co-founded the Collaborative for Academic, Social and Emotional Learning at Yale University's Child Studies Center, which then moved to the University of Illinois at Chicago. Currently, he co-directs the Consortium for Research on Emotional Intelligence in Organizations at Rutgers University. In 1995, he authored the internationally best-selling book, Emotional Intelligence, which is his major claim to fame. He kind of owns that phrase. And if you haven't heard the term emotional intelligence, seriously, where have you been all your life? Donald, okay. like most people, I've heard this term bandied about a lot and been tested for it um, and so on. But I'm not sure I could explain the theory or list its moving parts. Can you do that for us? Yes, well, the emotional intelligence itself, of course, famously just published in quite a populist book, which made outrageous claims about its efficacy based on no science whatsoever, I should add. Uh, so, it got, and actually, the term was the term wasn't invented by Goldman. It goes back to a guy called Michael Be uh, Beldock, way back to the nineteen sixties. Oh. And uh, actually, there's it's a number of people have noted that there's more than a touch of Gardner's multiple intelligences in Goldman's theory. So, I think that was another influence on Goldman here. But basically, he sees this as a set of competencies that allow you not only to assess other people's emotions, but control and use your own emotions. So the emotional landscape, as it were, would be uh, manageable. You could teach it in courses and so on. And he then split it down into five things. These guys are great at models. Everything's very simple. There are five things here. <laughs> Self-awareness, so that's knowing your own emotions. That's fair enough, I suppose, you know, and, that you, and what impact you're having on others. Quite a difficult thing to assess sometimes. Self-regulation which is managing especially all your negative anger and, you know, bad behavior and, uh, you know, biases and so on. So self-awareness, self-regulation. Social skills is another one, uh, and that's managing the emotions of other people. In other words, you might be managing a group of people who are getting a bit angsty. How do you control that? Uh, that's a set of social skills. And then the fourth one is empathy. Uh, a word you hear a lot these days. It's bandied around like crazy, of course. Very and that's, the, you know, of course, the understanding and taking into account other people's emotion, you know, putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. And then lastly, motivation. How do you motivate yourself to do things? So self-awareness, self-regulation, uh, the social skills, um, uh, social skills, I've got another one, empathy and motivation. Five things. For Goldman, these were the five gold stars, gold standards, the competencies that you could learn if you went on a course. Uh, uh, now, <laughs> Whoa, hold back here. Is this true or is it not? Let's let's do a, a Myers-Briggs examination of the evidence here. And there is a brilliant paper by Joseph in 2015. Uh, so it's a meta-analysis of the 15, the best 15 studies they could, easily the best summary uh, uh, of this though, uh, of emotional intelligence so far. And what did they find? They found a correlation, but it was a a, a correlation with job performance, but it was incredibly weak at 0 0.29. So 0 0.4 is often used as a sort of reasonable sort of benchmark or standard here for some sort of predictive power and performance in the workplace. Mm -hmm. But just to be clear what that 0.29 means, it means that the predictive power and performance is about 8.4%. In other words, it's so negligible, you would not spend the money on running the courses, okay? Mm -hmm. Because that money would be largely wasted you know, a tiny, tiny effect is measured. So by and large, don't bother. Then what became 
obvious that there was in in the studies there was also that there was a sort of bait and switch going on here when people were trying to prove that intelligence uh, even within that study or those studies that they looked at joseph that e emotional intelligence or ei <laughs> like iq always have two letters it sounds better it's not a thing in itself, but it's actually a mixture or amalgam of other things, especially the good old personality measure. So inadvertently, the emotional intelligence testing people had brought in personality type stuff into their, the good old MBTI stuff into their mixture here. So when you unpack e, unpack the six EI tests, they found it had things like self-control, conscientiousness, industriousness you know, all the sort of things that we had in personality tests. Now, when you strip, so what you can do is run the, t run the data again and say, let's strip out personality types from the data to see what this emotional intelligence thing really is. The correlation then plummets to negative 0.2. And it, was, it, has, it has a detrimental effect. This is awful, this stuff. So like so many fads in the HR, you know, the good... The, the good experimental data shows that it's just nonsense. You, we just should not be training in this manner. It's not to say that you can't do some training around this stuff. I, want, I don't want to be ridiculously negative about everything here. Nevertheless, Goldman's claims himself were outrageous that generally AI was twice as useful as either technical knowledge or general personality traits. This is just nonsense. And then his claim that it was about... It accounts for about 60% of superior leadership performance. And I have seen that quoted in leadership courses. Absolute mm. bullshit. And He's of course, now saying it's a threshold competence. So you need your technical knowledge and so on to get your yes, and this is, and, yeah. But above that, if you're really going to progress and uh, last as yeah. a, a corporate leader, you need emotional intelligence. That's right. Twice, twice as useful. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder, I wonder though if, if the reason this stuff is so popular and, and similar with the multiple intelligences stuff is, is that actually you want it to be true. I mean, if you've kind of ever worked in an abusive workplace and had terrible managers who were, you know, completely unfeeling and uncaring, and yeah. then um, you, you have people coming along saying that actually to be an effective leader, you, you have to go, you be nice to people and notice the feelings of people around you. You want that to be true, don't you? And similarly yeah. with multiple intelligences, you want to to feel that it, so it, it's a shame when they turn out to have no yeah, but foundation. I don't want it to be true if they're completely incompetent. You know, I don't want uh, I don't I don't want Boris to manage me just because he's a nice guy and he makes me feel good. I want him to be able to run the country. So I think I think this notion, you know, it came along and it's interesting, it came along at the same time as leadership training took, took off, you know, and was a sort of underpins a lot of leadership training. In fact, I don't think there are many leadership programs that don't have this as its major sort of a major plank of it in, in many ways. However, I think you've got to be very, very careful with the correlations and, and how true it is. So when you do the test, so there's a famous, very famous NCEIT tests, uh, and I, yeah, that was the test results of about 111 business leaders, and where you compared those with view of the, of the same leaders by their employees. So you do the do the emotional intelligence thing, and then ask the employees, guess what? No correlation whatsoever. So you've got to be very careful about what claims are made for this thing. You know, these emotional experts who uh, uh, that, that people hire to administer and uh, these emotional intelligence tests. Hmm. The tests themselves have been found wanting as well. If you're using an emotional intelligence test, especially the multi-health systems, so it's, uh, you'll find that actually the research shows that some of those tests had cheated 
and that they were actually being scored wrongly even. The test is weak, there are no correct answers, so it's not anchored in any objective standard. So I'm afraid this has all had hallmarks of other HR fads. And the fact that it underpins, you know, never have we had so much leadership training and so little of it. <laughs> you know, I can't think of any time in my life when I've seen leaders and, you know, whether they're politicians, sports people, celebrities, you name it, that have been so hypocritical, disingenuous, disrespected by people in general. We are living in an age where this is the norm, despite this tsunami of emotional books like emotional intelligence and leadership training and courses and rhetoric. This is all terrible news because I scored very highly on my test. Okay, so we have to move on now to summing up. An interesting question with all these theories of assessment is what exactly it is that's being assessed, cognitive yeah. ability yeah. of individuals, personality differences, racial differences, in some cases, strength or weaknesses of economies even. Um, and for what purposes? It seems there's always an agenda. Plus, this seems to be the distorting lens of commercial interest. Do you think of Isaac or governmental policy? Think of Burt in some cases. And we don't see that so much of that in other parts of the experimental psychology, mm. as, as far as I can remember. Why is this particular type of inquiry so difficult to get right, do you think? Well, I think as a form of inquiry, I think it's wrongheaded to start with. So it's something I've said throughout this podcast is I think it suffers from this uh, false essentialism. Uh, and this essentialism has resurfaced time and time again since Darwin. But, and of course, long before that, you know, the essentialism being, yeah, you're a Sagittarian. You know, what's, what, what on earth? What, is there an essence of Sagittarianism? Of course there's not, because all you're doing is relying on flattering people <laughs> or giving them a self-quiz and making them feel, uh, making them curious about themselves. That's what the effect is, but it's a sort of weird form of distorted placebo. Why does that start with Darwin? Well, that, uh, uh, as I said earlier on, that's when it really took off with Galton. You know, Galton was a Darwin fan, and because... Uh, Darwin had come along with this idea that there was a heritable component here through natural selection. Oh, okay. People really did home in on the essence being inheritability. Okay. So that was a form of essentialism, but the same is true right through to Myers-Briggs, MBTI, and of course, the essentialism that lies behind this thing called, you know, uh, these five things called emotional intelligence, as if they were real things. Uh, and I don't think they are. Now, it's resurfaced again, actually, with this 21st century skills, you know, curiously all beginning with the letter C. Who did, uh, I wonder, you know, which looks great on a PowerPoint. I wonder how, if only the world were that alliterative, John, <laughs> the real world, you know, creativity, collaboration, communication, critical thinking, as if it didn't, domain knowledge doesn't matter, competency doesn't matter. As long as people have these abstract skills, we'll be okay. No, we won't. <laughs> uh, if you want to solve the climate change problem, I don't want creativity, collaboration, communication, and critical skills. I want people to come up with a tech that solves the problem. You know? So it strikes me as things, you know, like critical thinking, show, it shows a little propensity towards applying that skill to itself. Hmm. You know, peddling this critical thinking that's not domain specific. Uh, 
the people who teach this are often the people who are least open to it, as it were, when you start criticising the, the evidence base behind it, for example. But going back to your why question, really, that's the key question. Absolutely spot on with that question, John. I think the problem here is what you do with this, because the reason people are doing this is to make judgments on other people. That's what they do with this data. And these are real people in real lives. And some of those lives can be blighted by these judgments. We had the example of the 11 plus, but I think it's also true of MBTI. People use MBTI to make recruitment, promotion, and team decisions. This is absurd if it doesn't, if it's not fine, if it's not validated scientifically. Mm. This is actually harmful. It's actually immoral. Super, because in so with it, degrees now as well, degrees being kind of entry level for whole swathes of jobs. No. That's correct, John. And th in fact, that judgment, exactly. So this led to what you know, Kaplan, Sandal, Goodhart, you know, have given full, full critiques of this. This massive skew social skew towards rewarding, especially these abstract rational skills, what you might call the, what, what Goodhart calls the head skills, you know, the knowledge workers, people who work in finance. Then, of course, they take all the rewards for themselves and leave the rest to struggle. So... The head gets all the money. He thinks we've reached that peak head now with COVID. And that as we found during COVID, actually the head people weren't that useful. What really mattered were the hand people, people mm. delivering all the parcels and the lorry drivers and the nurses and the doctors, the people who could actually had those real yeah. skills in the real world. And of course the heart people. So you've got, we give all the money to the people who've got head skills, rational skills, you know, IQ type orientated skills, forgetting the fact that actually the world turns also on the, on, the, on the experience and skills of those who have hand skills, vocational skills, and of course heart, all the people who look after people in our care homes, the nurses, the social workers, all those people who are nice to other people in our jobs. And of course, COVID brought this all to the fore. And we've seen this, I mean, the degree process is largely one of head, isn't it? It's incredibly theoretic and abstract. And I'm not convinced that this has been a good thing for all of us since, uh, you know, we've seen the social effect of this is one half of the population almost looking down on the other half because they're graduates and yeah. calling them low-skilled, almost beneath contempt. This is what Sandal wrote a really good book on this, which is all of critiquing this notion of a meritocracy. Hmm. thinks this is just producing a, lot, a bunch of people that think they're just smarter than other people. That's why they've been successful, which is far from the truth. Hmm. So, you know, going back on all this, I think it's time that we rolled back from this essentialism and applying these batteries of tests to people because it's just bolstering up a system based on no science whatsoever to keep those inequalities going. Okay, one last question, which in a way is re banging on again about the rephrasing the original question. But if none of the ways that we've covered of um, assessing personality and cognitive ability really seem to work because they come judgments that are too socially in, in, inflected. Is there a, a better way to do it or should we just abandon the attempt to do it altogether? Oh yeah. I, I have no problem with assessing, uh, assessing competency, hmm. which I think we've lost a little bit. You know, if you look at workplace learning, all this money that's sucked up into leadership training you know, and the rest have been left to sort of left fallow, as it were. The same in the education system. The money that goes into higher education as opposed to vocational learning, which has been going on for decades. So I, it's not that assessment is a bad thing. 
both formative and summative. It's just that we assess and filter people on the wrong essentialist qualities, which we always think are abstract reason and for, some, for some reason. But even when we turn the other way, we swing the pendulum towards emotional intelligences, we swing the pendulum far too far and take it far too seriously. Actually, being reasonable about assessment in terms of what you're trying to assess and whether you really are assessing it is all and good. But... Uh, all we get are abstractions, creativity, communication, collaboration, you know, these C words in 21st century skills, uh, or these abstract two-letter EQ, uh, uh, sorry, EI, emotional intelligence, or IQ, intelligence quotient. It's time we moved away from the essentialism towards the real assessment of people's abilities and dispositions in such a way that is fair uh, and equitable for everyone thank you very much Donald thank you John Great Minds on Learning comes from the Learning Hack team and is produced by John Helmer sound edit is by Isaac Peacock social media by Jay Curtis the podcast is based on a series of blog posts written by Donald Clark and would like to thank Donald for his kind collaboration in this project In the next episode, Donald and John explore social and team learning. Be sure not to miss it.